Thank you, Bill, and I want to say thank you to the uh, praise team for the work, not a wasp this time, <laughs> for the work that uh, they put in and leading us and um, leading us to uh, in song in the right things. Uh, we're singing the right things, singing about the faithfulness of God, that God sending Jesus so that um, we can have a way, we can have access to Him, and, and, and through that access to God that we now have hope. And it's the hope in which we stand, it's the only hope that we have, and so I just want to thank the praise team for uh, taking us in song there. As you uh, open up your Bibles, if you were there during the reading, if you don't have a Bible, there are, there are ones in the seats around you. Uh, we are going to be in Romans chapter 11, and uh, I, I, the, the attempt this morning is to cover the first 11 verses in Romans chapter 11, actually the first 10, uh, it shortened once, and so we'll see if we get all the way through uh, this morning, it's okay if we don't, um, but I, I want to attempt to cover the first 11 verses in chapter 11. So as you open up your Bibles, as, you, as, as Bill read earlier from God's Word, the first thing that we see in chapter 11, verse 1, are these words, I say then. Um, we've taken a break from Romans 11 as we've uh, had various speakers come in and speak to us. And so as we jump back in, it's fitting uh, that we jump back into chapter 11 and Paul says, I say then. And when he says, I say then, he's pointing us back. He's pointing us backwards to... Um, the argument that he's been laying out. And I think specifically, Paul, as he is, as he is, as he is hammering away at this point that we're going to talk about this morning, he, he's calling his reader back to, to what he has said from, from Romans chapter 9 up until now in chapter 11. And that is, is that the Word of God has not failed. The Word of God has not failed. That as he has written, he has showed us that there, there, there is a problem. That's what we've discussed in Romans chapter 9 through 11. And the problem that Paul is addressing in Romans 9 through 11 is that the Israelites, the promised people of God, were rejecting the Messiah. And, and as Gentiles were coming into the church, what Paul was seeing in his day and what we've continued to see on into our day is that the number of Gentiles coming into the church is vastly outnumbering the number of Israelites who are accepting the Messiah. And so by and large in Paul's day and by and large in all day, in our day, the Israelites are rejecting the Messiah. And if you've been with us, uh, you know the reason this is important. It's important for uh, many, many reasons, but Paul started chapter 9 after chapter 8, logically, right? I mean, we put the numbers there, but remember, remember the last couple of verses before Paul jumps into this issue of the, the, um, the Jews rejecting the Messiah and talking about God's faithfulness, and let me just read some verses from you from Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and who also intercedes from us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep being slaughtered. But in Him, in all these things, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things to come nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Massive promise. Massive promise. And as Paul is breaking forth in these chapters, if we've been going over the past couple of months, chapters 9 through 11, what Paul is telling us is this. There must have been someone in the church that was in Paul's ear that was saying the word of God has failed because the Israelites were rejecting the Messiah and Paul is emphasizing and telling us and wants us to understand that God's word has not failed. In fact, in chapter 11 this morning, in verse verse 1 again, it says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? And and notice if you've been with us and if you've, as we've talked about this phrase that's repeated in this book, may it never be, is this strong, emphatic message, may it never be. It can't be. God rejecting His people is a contradiction of terms in and of itself. That's not who our God is. He does not reject His people. He does not go against His promise. He does not go against His Word. So this morning, this morning, we're going to get another argument here from Paul um, concerning this topic. And I want to walk through the flow of the argument. There are five points that I want to try to get at. And we'll see if we get to all that. And at the end, at the end, I want us to get this big picture sweeping application. And before we, before we dive into the argument, I want to ask a question. And the question I want to ask you is, Why would this question be asked? Why would the question be asked to Paul, has God rejected or forgotten His people whom He has given these promises? Now, I know from from one vantage point we're saying, well, the question is asked because the Jews are rejecting the Messiah. I get that. I understand it. But why would the person who is seeing the Jews rejecting their Messiah, why would they ask this question? Have you ever thought about that? And I think it really comes down to something, and I think we're going to see Paul really kind of bring this out through this text. And I think it comes out with one of two problems in the person who is asking this question. Number one, this person might be just in a state of worry and panic because things aren't unfolding like they think they should unfold, and so they're panicking. Oh no, maybe God's not in control. Now, it's one thing to academically or intellectually talk about this when it comes to Israel. But what I'm hoping is that as we talk about this bigger principle of God's faithfulness, that one of the things that you will do this morning 
is that as you're sitting here and maybe you're in a difficult time, maybe you're facing something that you don't understand. One of the things that I want you to maybe think of is, do you find yourself with this thought process this morning? A little panicked. I don't understand what's going on in a state of almost desperation. Another reason somebody might ask this question, has God's word failed because Israel is rejecting the Messiah, is because maybe that person is uh, a little bit of a control freak. Maybe that person is standing and looking at culture and saying, I wouldn't have done it this way. And if God doesn't agree with me on how I would have done it, well, there must be something wrong with God. Do you ever find yourself in that position? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves there more uh, than we would like to admit. So as we unpack these things, uh, I, I, I'm going to stop along the way and I hope that you see uh, some help and some words of application before we get even to the final big word of application. So the first thing I want you to see in this flow, in this argument, um, is in verse 1. So, so Paul is saying here, uh, God has not rejected His people as He may it never be. And his first argument here is this. He said, God hasn't rejected His people because I'm an Israelite. Very easy, straightforward argument, right? If God had rejected His people, God would have rejected Paul. And at first glance, we see that and we understand it because Paul is a Jew himself and so he wouldn't have been let in. But I want to press this just a little bit further. I want to think about Paul's testimony a little bit here. Paul, when he was Saul, didn't just kind of reject the Messiah, did he? Paul was vehemently breathing threats against the church and dragging people who were placing their faith in Jesus Christ, dragging them out of their homes and if you remember, it was Paul, Saul at that point, it was at his feet when they stoned Stephen that they placed their robes. So this man, Paul, when he's saying God hasn't rejected his people because he saved me, one of the things he is telling us is that if God had a right to reject anybody, it's this man. You get that? And Paul, I think somewhat in astonishing fashion, is saying, I don't get it, but God has not rejected the Jewish people because I'm the vilest defender of rejecting the Messiah and God saved me. Paul was not seeking Christ. Christ came and found him on the road, blinded him and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Opened his eyes to who he was and Paul opened his, his heart was open to who Jesus was and accepted him. And so Paul is saying God has not rejected his people. That's the first thing. The second argument uh, that we see in verses 2 through 5 is that Israel has a history of rejecting God. Let's look at verses 2 through 5. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal in the same way. In the same way. 
So one of the things that we see, the, the argument that Paul lays out here, is that Israel has a history of rejecting God. And we see this all throughout the Bible. In many ways, it's interesting, I want to bring out this, one of the things I want to bring out this morning is a parallel between Paul and Elijah. But first, let, let's talk a little bit about Elijah and where this quote comes from in 1 Kings chapter 18. Why was Elijah so downcast? You remember the story? Elijah was brought uh, in and he was, uh, he, was confronting, um, he was confronting Ahab. And he was, uh, and Israel had turned to worshiping Baal. And so Elijah, God spoke to Elijah. And so what Elijah said was, we're going to have this contest. And the contest we're going to have is we're going to build altars. And you're going, to, uh, you're, you're going to cry out to Baal and see if he hears you and light your altar on fire. And I'm going to cry out to my God and let's see what happens. And we all know the story. They douse the one. Uh, uh, they, they, they go around and they cry and they scream and they cut themselves. And we have this story of Elijah even taunting them. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he doesn't hear you. And so they're going and doing. And then when it comes, nothing happens. And when Elijah's turn, they throw water on the altar, and God consumes everything. This wonderful victory, right? And so, how do you think you would respond in the face of this wonderful, miraculous event? I think the pride in Lewis is I'd probably be walking around with my chest out a little bit, being like, I'm God's man. In fact, earlier, we had Elijah saying things like this, because God told him this, there's going, to be a, there's going to be a drought until I say it's going to rain. That's not where we find Elijah, is it? We find Elijah downtrodden. The very next moment in the story, we find him downtrodden. We find him underneath a, a tree, and he's just despairing of even life itself. And that's where this quote comes from. And so one of the things I think we have to ask ourselves is, why, why is he so downtrodden? And the easy answer is that, you know, after all this took place, Jezebel said, hey, listen, Elijah, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. So I don't know if you've thought about this too often. What would we have liked Elijah's response to be in the face of Jezebel threatening his life? Yeah, bring it. Did you not just see what just happened? I am a prophet of God. No foolish queen is going to scare me. You can't scare me. I am a prophet of God Almighty. Did you see what just happened? But yet that's not where we find Elijah. And so we ask the question, why? And I think the answer of why Elijah got so downcast is that I think Elijah had expectations of what was going to happen afterwards that weren't met. I think what Elijah thought was going to happen is that as soon as God showed up and did this wonderful and great thing, there was going to be a revival that broke out among Israel and there was going to be this great spiritual awakening and this great political awakening and that Israel was going to return to its true place. And when that did not happen, when his expectations were not met, boom, he isolates himself, finds himself depressed, and, and if you read the rest of the story, uh, we're not going to go all into this, he was, he was never the same. 
And we see his response there to God is, God asks him, what are you doing, Elijah? And Elijah says, I'm left alone. You know, similarly, similarly, I think if you would have gone, if you know the reporter on the streets that they have, I think if there was such thing as a reporter on the street in uh, five years before uh, Jesus' ministry happens, if you would have gone out and asked Jewish, the normal Jewish person on the street, if you would have said this, hey, what do you think would happen if in five years the Messiah will show up on the public scene? And not only will the Messiah show up on the public scene, but three years after the Messiah shows up on the public scene, there's going to be this thing called Pentecost. It's going to be the fulfillment, the fulfillment of, of, of what we see in Jeremiah. The, the new age is going to be ushered in. What do you think the average Jewish person would have said? They would have said, praise God, sign me up. What did we see happen? That expectation wasn't met. What we see happen is that once again, once again, the people of God, God's chosen race, Israel, rejects God, rejects the Messiah. Instead of welcoming Him in and welcoming His message, they killed Him. I even think about Avi's update last, last week. I, I love Avi. I love what they're doing. Jews for Jesus. And um, I think about his update and, you know, every time I hear about um, ministries towards ethnic Jews, I I don't know if you do this, but I do this. It it boggles my mind sometimes that somebody can go to Israel and have this ministry, this campaign, and you just, you wish, you just think, oh no, if you can just intellectually connect the dots for them. No, this Jesus, he was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament that, boom, mass revival. But that's not what happened. Historically, it always has been. And it continues to this day that throughout the course of history that Israel has always rejected God, by and large. So, the third thing that I want you to see is that although... By and large, as a whole, Israel has rejected God. God has always, in the history of Israel, worked by preserving a remnant. A remnant is a small group out of the whole. And God has always worked this way. Um, One of the things that I I think that we see, the difference between Paul um, and Elijah, is that Paul can say, my heart is broken for my kinsmen. I wish myself were accursed so that they could see the Messiah and they could be welcomed into the fold. But that heartbrokenness doesn't lead Paul to despair. It leads Paul to uh, urgency. It leads Paul to burden. And what's the difference? The difference is, is that when Paul gets this feeling, gets this thought, he goes to the Scripture, and when he goes to the Scripture, one of the things that he sees is that over and over and over again in his Old Testament, the people of God rejected God, and God still lovingly and graciously worked and preserved a remnant for himself. And so Paul, when he looks at his present day, in tears, 
burdened to the core, says, God has always worked this way. My God is faithful. I'm all in. I'm not shaken. So I want to just kind of pause for a moment and ask, where do you go? Where do you go when life happens and the waves come up and it feels like you're going to be washed away and you feel like that God has abandoned you? Where do you go? Do you go sit underneath a tree and complain and bellyache? Or do you go to God's Word and find God's character and put yourself around people who are going to Builds you up. See, the, the problem, as I said earlier, the problem with God is that many times His ways are not our ways. His ways are not our ways. And we could give testimony of that over and over and over again. And what Paul, I think, one of the things that he is doing through this text is he's exhorting this questioner, hey, listen, our God is way bigger than you are. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm getting ahead of myself. Trust God. He has a plan. And so we see this through this idea uh, that we see all throughout the Bible, that we see all throughout the Scripture, and that is, is that God has always had a remnant. He's always worked this way. In other words, there was never, I don't know if you've thought about this, but there were never really the good old days in Israel's history. Have you ever thought about that? Even until now, there's never really been the good old days, at least a sustaining thing. It's just this history of, Revival, God brings a prophet, God brings a judge, and they turn. And then we see, as we're reading, a chapter, a generation later, they did not follow in the ways of their fathers, and instead they turned to idols. Over and over and over. So God has always, always preserved a remnant. That's always been the way He has worked. And so as Paul is answering this question, has God rejected His people? He's saying no. There's a remnant and God has always done it this way. And we see that to this day. We see that to this day. The fourth thing I want you to see. I want you to ask yourself, because it's where Paul goes. So, God has always worked this way. There's always been a remnant. And Paul is saying here through this text that there is a remnant now as Paul is speaking. And so the question that we should have that Paul takes us to is, Okay, well then how do people become part of the remnant? Does God look down from heaven and find the the brightest and the sharpest and the most skilled and the ones that can just really represent Him the best? And that's not what we see, is it? If that were the case, the Apostle Paul would not be part of that remnant. What we see and what we see in our text, look at verses 5 through 6. In the same way then, that's where Paul is saying, just like he did historically, in the same way then now, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according, look at this, according to God's gracious choice. 
And, and we've been going through this and through this and through this in the book of Romans. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so to what do the remnant owe their position? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. In the day of Elijah, why a remnant? It's only by God's grace. I think sometimes we don't understand our sin, and so we don't understand God's grace. One of the things we don't understand in Elijah's day is that the people of God, whom God had continually rescued, continually sought after, continually brought uh, prophets, continually brought people to uh, uh, turn them and to call them back to God. And here we find them in Elijah's day that they had turned from God and worshipped Baal. They had broken the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. And sometimes we don't realize how much of a front that is to the God of the universe. And amazingly, over and over and over in history, only by God's grace that God is producing a remnant, God is protecting a remnant, and God is preserving a remnant. And the point is, is that it's all God and that it's all grace. We even see, uh, I was listening to uh, something this past week, and they were talking about Isaiah and his son. And his, son, his son's name, uh, and God often did this in the Old Testament. He would give uh, people names or their family members names to project something about himself. And one of Isaiah's son's name translated means a remnant shall return. So the prophet Isaiah fittingly uh, had a son and God gave him that name, a remnant shall return. So our confidence should not be in the character of the people, but our confidence should be in God's grace. Now, lastly... um, We're going we're gonna to cover part of this next week. I'm going to jump forward here. Um, I, let me just briefly touch on it, and then we'll really unpack it next week. Not really unpack it. We've covered this quite a bit, but we'll unpack it somewhat next week. But the last point here uh, in unpacking the argument, the reason, uh, uh, the reason that Israel had rejected the Messiah, and we'll, we'll see that we get the most controversial verses here, so I want to have enough time to kind of go over that next week. But, but I want to drop down and, and to say, okay, so what's the sweeping big main point? And again, go back to this question of why was Paul even having to address this? Why was somebody even asking the question, has God's word fail? And we talked about that it has to do with doubt, not, not knowing. And, and ultimately, here's what it boils down to. What Paul is pressing, the big point, what I want you to get through this section of Scripture is that the ultimate point in all of this is that as believers, our hope has to be in God. That Paul is pushing as he is, as he, as his readers are reading this and as as people are wondering what in the world is going on, is God rejecting His people, what He is pleading with them, and He's giving them arguments, but what He is pushing them back to over and over and over again is to hope in God. And that's the goal that Paul is driving home. 
He has done and is doing great things, even when things are beyond our understanding. You know, it, it blows my mind in the story of Elijah. I mean, not only did Elijah have this thing with the fire and the altar and consumed, but if you, if you read the story of Elijah right before this uh, confrontation, you know, you have Elijah is being fed by birds in the wilderness. He's being totally taken care of. Uh, God tells him to, to go, you know, into the city and he'll get bread. And he, the widow and her son, and she, she was, you know, remember what she was doing? The famine had come and she's like, nope, I'm just getting the last meal. We're going to die. And Elijah says, no, you won't die. So this miracle takes place of the replenishing of the supplies for bread. Not only that, but this, this widow's son does die. And Elijah does this really odd thing of laying on him three times and he comes back to life. Not only that, but all the prophets of God had been hiding because Ahab, the king, was wanting them all killed. And uh, we see Elijah very boldly saying, no, 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 get me a meeting with Ahab. I want to talk to this guy. Yet, yet, when things get perplexing for him, he folds. And I want to contrast that this morning with the example of Paul. How does Paul handle conflict? How does Paul handle unexpected turns in his story? When Paul is, is feeling like, hey, I'm supposed to go into this city, I'm supposed to deliver this message, and when he goes into that city and he's put in jail, what is Paul's mindset? Is Paul's mindset, oh no, has God rejected me? No, Paul's mindset is, oh, God must have brought me to this city so this jailer can be saved. Right? That shows a man whose hope is in God and who is trusting God even when the circumstances get messy and even when the circumstances get beyond comprehension. I mean, have you ever thought about this? You know, Paul is saying, okay, I know for a shadow of a doubt that I'm supposed to go on this ship to go to this country and then the thing gets shipwrecked. But yet over and over again, we see Paul giving this example for us to, to, to place your hope and trust in God even when things are beyond our own understanding. There's this bigger picture that we'll cover over the next couple weeks um, about what happens with Israel and what happens uh, in the end times. And um, uh, there's, you know, you think. When you go throughout Romans, you think, oh, this is the most controversial chapter. And then every chapter, especially in this section, you're like, oh, this is even more controversial. And chapter 11 has its share of controversies. And we'll dig into that a little bit later. But I just want to exhort you this morning to hope in God. And I, I, I want to just lean in really close to four groups of people. The first two groups of people that I want to lean in really close to are fathers and mothers. And, and I want to ask you the question this morning, as you are bringing up your children, are you bringing up your children to hope in God or are we guilty of bringing up our children to hope in their own understanding? Are you bringing up your children to hope in God? 
Or are you bringing up your children to hope in their own understanding? So when trouble comes to your home, when conflict comes to your home, when something happens in the midst of your home, do you immediately, first thing you do, run to solutions and logic? Or do you grab those little ones by the hand and take them and pray and assure them that whatever happens, whether good or bad, that God is in control and our God knows what He's doing His ways are bigger than our ways. And no matter what we confront, we're going to hope and trust in God and not in our own understanding. So that's the first two groups. The second two groups, and I'm tricking you because everyone's in this. The second two groups that I want to to lean in on is older men and older women. In our body of faith, in, in, in our church family, are you exhorting the younger men and younger women around you? Are you involved in their life and are you exhorting them to trust in God, to hope in God? You have valuable experience that we need. You all have walked this path before us and you all can tell us uh, stories of times when maybe you didn't trust in God and you leaned in your own understanding and how God was faithful and directed your paths. You have plenty of stories from us that we need. And so part of being a a body together, a family is needing that wisdom. So. Where are you this morning? In a few moments, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, the the, the people that are handing out the elements for the Lord's Supper magically appear, um, and somebody magically appears at the piano. Um, but a few moments I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're, we're to sit together, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And partaking of the Lord's Supper is a symbol that we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our hope, as our only hope. And so what I want you to do, as I pray for us and as the people magically appear, what I want you to do as I'm praying, I want you to pray. God, I have placed my trust in You. I have confessed with my mouth that I, I hope in You that I know that You have provided a way. Jesus Christ is the only way to You. But God, help me remember, constantly bring remembrances to me that I know that You are in control and Your ways are above my ways. And how I would have done it doesn't really matter, but what matters most is how You have done it. And help that propel me to live the kind of life where I always trust and hope in You. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there is so much here in this text. We're just scratching the surface and there's so much here that has to do with future events, the state of Israel. And sometimes, God, I think when we when we read these texts and we study these texts, that we miss just some glaring, big main points. And God, I pray this morning that we don't miss 
the big, glaring, main point. That God, that you are faithful, that you have always been faithful, and that you will continue to be faithful. And God, I pray that as we read about the the state of Israel in her past, and God, as we look forward to what's going to happen in the future, that not only when it comes to Israel that we trust and hope in you, that you're going to do a mighty and great work. But God, I pray that we would also personalize this and know that in our own hearts and in our own lives that you are working, you are trustworthy, and even when it feels like we are being led like sheep to the slaughter, that God, you are still there. You are still working, even when we don't understand your way. So God, I pray this morning that you would encourage my heart and that you would encourage the hearts of my brothers and sisters to hope in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are going.